I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, down the line from Frankfurt, we're joined by Olaf Storbeck, our German financial correspondent. And in New York, we have Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Our guest this week is Michael Darcy, who is Ireland's financial services minister. This week, we will take a look at Deutsche Bank as it announces a radical overhaul, including 18,000 job cuts. Secondly, Andrea Rochel, the former investment banking boss at UBS, sues his prospective but abortive new employer Santander for 100 million euros. And finally, that interview with Michael Darcy from the Irish Finance Ministry. So our first topic today, Deutsche Bank, is a pretty dramatic restructuring that's been announced. And we're joined now by Olaf in Frankfurt and also by Laura, who we'll be speaking to in a second, in New York not least because a large part of these cuts are centred on the US operation of Deutsche Bank. First, though, to Olaf, give us, if you would, the top lines of this announcement. What are the key elements of Deutsche's restructuring? So you ask me to be brief, which will be slightly difficult because it's such a huge package Deutsche has announced on Sunday. In essence, they are retreating from large parts of capital markets trading activities. They are going to close the entire global equities trading operations, which generates about 2 billion euros of revenue each year and is estimated to be loss-making at about 600 million euros, if not more, annually. And they also close or reduce large parts of their rates trading business, saying that overall the balance sheet basically allocated to these trading activities will be shrunken by 40%. And this will come with the cutting of 18,000 jobs, which is one in five jobs at Deutsche Bank. They are now at 91,000 and will go down to 74,000, which is a level not seen since before the financial crisis in 2006-2007. So quite a dramatic reduction in workforce. At the same time, they are basically taking what's left of Deutsche and rejig quite a few deck chairs. So they take the corporate lending to German Mittelstand clients or to German corporates, which is currently at the retail bank, merge it with part of the investment bank and have the idea to basically form a corporate bank which provides all transaction banking services, so cash management, trade finance and corporate lending on top. This will be one of the kind of future pillars of the bank. They hope to bring this to a return on equity of 15% by 2022, which is quite a remarkable target because costs of equity are at about 10%. And in last year, the overall bank only 0.5 and they struggled to get to the target of 4 The retail operations in Germany will be a standalone business and they take what's left of the investment bank and have two units. One is going to provide corporate finance services like debt issuance, equity issuance, 
and advisory services in M&A and they will keep a reduced part of their trading operations, basically bonds trading, FX trading and smaller rates trading business. And the rump of what they don't want to continue doing from those equity trading businesses, but also some of the legacy rates contracts that they have, for example, are going to be put into a pretty giant so-called bad bank or what are they calling it? A capital optimization unit? It's quite an Orwellian term, if you ask me. They call it capital release unit. That's right. And this is a 74 billion euro unit, right? Yes. So they have risk-weighted assets of 74 billion Half of this will be real assets like credit exposures, derivative exposures and other stuff. And the half is what they call operating risk, which is more of a balance sheet position. So it's not really related to actual assets. These assets which they put into this bad bank, they tie up about 10 billion in capital and they hope to be able to release that capital as they wind down the assets over time. They think that it will take them about two years to get rid of the stuff. A large share of these assets are basically equity trading assets, which have short durations, are not really toxic and should probably not create large problems in getting them off the balance sheet. In summary, how has this plan, which is obviously very ambitious, gone down? How has the market responded? Yeah, the market response is really interesting. Listeners may know the Financial Times, Stephen Morris and I, reported about a key bit of the plan in mid-June about these bed bank plans. We didn't know it was called a capital release unit. And basically from the moment our story came out, Deutsche's share price has been on an upwards trajectory until last Friday, gaining 20%, outperforming other European banking stocks. And on Friday, when they announced the departure of Gus Ritchie, the investment banking chef, the share price jumped another 4%. On Monday, after all the details were released, the share price initially opened up as well, 3%, but then completely reversed all the gains and closed down minus 5 And today, on Tuesday, shares are down another 4%. Um, so the initial kind of positive reaction has completely disappeared. And now it's basically back to normal with regard to Deutsche, being at 02 times book value and somewhere between six and seven euros. So the big hope the bank had to basically change the narrative and escape this awkward position they are in didn't really work out. No, I guess there's some doubts as to whether they can deliver. Let's go for a final view on this whole plan to New York and Laura. You've been following the response to this plan in New York, Laura both in terms of what it means for the operations, because a large chunk of what they're cutting back on is US-based, but also what it means for the individual staff. So I guess the backdrop for this in a New York context is that there's been so much speculation about Deutsche Bank's US operations over the last few years. Even as recently as a couple of months back, there was speculation Deutsche Bank would close the US totally. So yes, there are going to be big and significant cuts at Deutsche on Wall Street, and Deutsche is the last bank physically on Wall Street. However, they have definitely stopped far short of what some people thought that they would do, which is close the entire US unit. So in terms of where the cuts are coming, it's basically the same as the picture globally. Equities trading, which is a big activity in New York, and also some of the rates businesses. So we were down on 60 Wall Street yesterday, trying to talk to people as they actually left the bank. Now, the numbers departing yesterday weren't dramatic. So anyone expecting the Lehman-type scenes of hundreds and thousands of people streaming out of their offices, holding cardboard boxes, 
that just didn't happen. Instead, we had a steady trickle of people, most of them the only way to mark out those who were being let go and those who were just going out for coffee, was they were carrying these large white envelopes and those were the envelopes HR gave people with details of their packages to avoid people coming out carrying bags or carrying boxes. Deutsche had actually arranged to ship the belongings of the individuals leaving to their home addresses or to other destinations. So that avoided those kind of scenes. Deutsche also gave people flexibility on the timing of their leavings. Well, by flexibility, they had a window of around three hours to leave. That sounds harsh to the outside world. There was some criticism about how people had to leave so swiftly. Realistically, for a market-sensitive business like Deutsche or for any market's business, you can't really have people staying around who are able to trade, who are able to impact on the bank's positions who are known to be leaving the bank because that's something that actually doesn't work. So you have that and certainly the equities business and the overall trading business has been very hard hit. On the side of that, however, there are other big businesses for Deutsche in the US. There is the investment banking and there is the corporate finance and the financing business in particular. Those have actually done pretty well out of that. I'm talking to people there on background. They're actually pretty bullish about the prospect for their businesses. And they will say that while they have a lot of sympathy for their colleagues who have lost their jobs, there's an element of relief. There's an element of them being freed from the shackles of what they saw as being a loss-making equities business, which was effectively dragging them down. And they now feel liberated to go forth and to do corporate finance. So whether their optimism is actually warranted and whether Deutsche can still be a big force in things like corporate finance and things like financial sponsors, that's something that's going to be played out over the coming months and the coming years. But certainly there are some optimistic people still in Deutsche's Wall Street headquarters. Yes, absolutely. Well, as you say, it will be three or four years before we know the full extent of how successfully this plan has been delivered. But at least there is a plan. Laura and Olaf, thank you so much. Let's move on now to Andrea Rochelle and this fascinating lawsuit that the former UBS investment banking boss has taken out against Santander. Regular listeners will remember that Mr. Rochelle had been due to go to Santander as chief executive until a few months ago when that uh, offer was rescinded. David's been following the ins and outs of this case all the way through. Uh, It's been fascinating. And now, as you predicted, I think, in your lunch with the FT, David, that you did with Andrea some time ago, a lawsuit has been filed and it's not a small one. No, people that have been following this will have expected this to come. He warned in that lunch that he is not a person who gives up easily especially when he feels he's been wronged. And so this lawsuit has been sent to Santander, as you say, it's for 100 million euros. It puts the Spanish bank in a very tough spot because, of course, if you think back to its reasoning for dropping Andrea Orsel at the very last minute, it was that it couldn't afford to buy him out of his deferred UBS compensation to the tune of 50 million euro at a time of heightened anger at bankers in Spain. So imagine the outcry if it is forced to pay 100 million euro, twice the amount, and it doesn't get its CEO. What do the prospects look like? Because obviously this is going to be a tightly contested case, I suspect. What is it possible for us to say about his chances of success? Well, I'm no expert in Spanish law, but if I was going to pick a side in Spain and I was choosing between the mighty establishment Santander and Mr. Orsel, I think I would probably back Santander. One thing we do know is that Andrea Orsel struggled to get legal representation. That is because all of the law firms in Spain were either conflicted by dint of working with Santander 
or didn't want to be associated with or sell for fear of losing future business from Santander. And allegedly, I don't know if this is true, we should probably check our facts before we talk about them, Santander has never lost a case in the Spanish law courts. I can well believe it. But uh, just a final word on this. From what we know, Mr. Rochelle's case does look quite solid. He has a lot of paperwork. He has allegedly a signed contract. What do you think about the merits of the case? Well, I think part of it will hinge on exactly how much paperwork he has and whether it does or does not amount to a contract. I think that will be an important point in the court case. And also it partly hinges on the reputational risk or the appetite for reputational risk for both sides. For Santander, as I said already, if it has to pay anything close to the 50 million it aborted the whole contract over in the first place, it would be a very bad day for the bank and its executive chair, Anna Bettine. But for Andrea too, who we understand is out there looking for jobs and who has told the Financial Times before that he really wants to be the chief executive of a large organisation, I've been talking to people that say that the longer he drags out this legal fight, the less chance there is that a big organisation will take a risk on him because they don't want this hanging over them and they don't want what could be perceived to be a troublemaker joining their ranks. It is a horrible mess, I think it's fair to say, and it's hard to see a winner, really. But we will follow it nonetheless. Thank you, David. Let's move on to our final topic of the day. And I spoke recently on the subject of Dublin's future as a financial centre to Michael Darcy, who is the Financial Services Minister in the Irish government. I started by asking him about the new plan that Ireland has drawn up for financial services and what his ambitions were for winning business from London. Well, the financial services sector is now a crucial aspect of the Irish economy. We have 44,000 jobs. Currently, we will add another 1,000 jobs this year that will achieve the target that we had anticipated in the previous strategy. This strategy has a target of 5,000 jobs. Our objective is to hold what we have, add other business lines and move Ireland up the value chain for financial services. Does that mean that this plan is deliverable regardless of the type of Brexit that we have? It it certainly does. While the interconnectedness between Ireland and the UK in terms of financial services is, is enormous, but we have a lot of different lines available to us now, whether it's banking, payments, fintech, insurance, reinsurance, leasing, and of course funds is enormous within the sector. And we have those lines available to us. We have a lot of uh, national companies and uh, they've established the structure in Ireland and a lot of them are hiring at the moment. Do you expect that of the 5,000 jobs that you're predicting, many will come in the banking sector from particularly those companies that have set up new operations in Ireland to deal with their own Brexit issues from London and then will be transferring more jobs to Dublin? I think it's a little bit of everything. I think um, while everybody's banking and payments are, are so important, I think the fintech side of things to passport into the EU27, as it will be in after the 31st of October, uh, I think the fintech side is going to be really, really important. Finally, I just wanted to ask you about Philip Lane, the um, outgoing or outgone chief of the uh, Central Bank of Ireland, who is being parachuted into a crucial new role as the chief economist of the ECB. And that role could be arguably even more influential than that role has traditionally been, given that he's going to be advising, as things stand anyway, a new president in Christine Lagarde, the IMF chief, 
who is not a monetary economist and presumably will be looking to Mr Lane for guidance. What do you expect him to guide her towards? Well, What's know, the priority? I, I know Philip for quite some time now and he is one of the most respected economists anywhere that I've come across. Uh, a lot of skill sets, a lot of abilities and he has vast experience now at this, at this point as well. I think he's a perfect fit for that role. And while Christine Lagarde isn't a trained economist, uh, I think she's remarkable experience between her time in trade and agriculture and the finance ministry in France, uh, as well as her period as the head of the IMF. I think the addition of those skill sets, along with uh, advice from a trained economist like Philip Lane, will be a very, very good match. From banks' point of view, the thing that they care most about is when interest rates are going to rise and when their interest margins might be able to be improved. Do you see any prospect for that? Do you think Mr Lane is likely to I, give guidance on that? It's very difficult. It's a really difficult question. It is. That's why I asked. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I think the level of uncertainty for now means that it's difficult to see how there would be a rise in the short term. It feels like it's going the other way. Absolutely. Well, our commiserations to the banks in the meantime. <laughs> but uh, Minister, thanks very much for joining. My pleasure. Well, that's all for this week. My thanks to David, Olaf and Laura, and also to our guest Michael Darcy from the Irish Government. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.